in the morning love And the sunlight hurts my eyes And something without warning love Bears heavy on my mind Then I look at you And the world's all right with me Good morning. This is State of the Arts NYC, and this is your host, Savannah Bailey-McLean. And we are extremely excited today because we have in the studio Hilton Owls, Pulitzer Prize-winning theater critic and writer for The New Yorker. And we're here to talk with him today about James Baldwin and his exhibition at the David Warner Gallery, God Made My Face, a collective portrait of Baldwin. So I just want to first thank Mr. Owls for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I wish you guys could see her. She's one of the best dressed. <laughs> I, I'm just so excited about this because um, the last time we spoke was the week you won the Pulitzer. You know, it's so f- funny. Uh, that whole month was is a blur. So remind me, was I was I polite? You were funny. <laughs> My God, you were so funny. So what happened? I saw you at David's Warner when you were doing the Alice Neal exhibition. That's right. And I had spoken with a curator at the Met Breuer, and mm-hmm. we had talked about it because they had just started their inaugural exhibition, mm-hmm. and hers was the signature portrait of the Invisible Soldier. Oh yes, in 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 the um, the unfinished um, portraits or unfinished yes. portraits, yeah, yes, yeah. And she and I, she was telling me the backstory of that the curator. portrait. Yes, yeah. And it brought me to tears, mm. and we were both crying. And I was like, oh, my God, what is it about this woman that's making people cry? Then I saw you at Davis Werner, mm. and you were talking about Alice Niels. And at one point, you got a little choked up. I remember that so well. It was um, when I was quoting Barclay Hendricks about her, Barclay Hendricks, the great black portraitist. And he said that Alice always told the truth, mm. which is why she had such a difficult time in the art world. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's extraordinary to imagine and think about doing all that work, and you have two kids, yeah, and you're more or less a single mother, yeah. So I take it off. I take my hat and my wig off to. <laughs> Every single mother in the world. Yeah. yeah. It was really it was really touching. So then I uh, you told me, because mm. I asked if um um I could have you on the show and you said sure. Mm. Just make all the arrangements. I made all the arrangements. And that Friday the gallery says, Savannah, everything is set. Hilton's gonna be on your show. I said, Oh great, fine, fantastic. Then that Monday yes. you won the Pulitzer. Yeah. And I was screaming, Oh my god. <laughs> You're you're a great great reporter, <laughs> and so um, when I got you, you had me in stitches. <laughs> you would say you knew what it was like for you know straight parents to have children because yeah. you got so many flowers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, for weddings and things. Yes, that's right. I was like, like this is what straight couples must feel like when they say that they're going to get married. <laughs> you had me in stitches, mm-hmm. and so I was like, oh my god, he's just this fabulous person (laughs) (laughs) and we talked and then um 
for to know that you were doing the James Baldwin exhibition mm-hmm. just in time at when if Beale Street could talk. That's right. So the timing is, you know, just fantastic. Yeah. And so uh, I went rushing, and this time I didn't just go by myself. I took my sister and my nephew, who's oh, wow. 11 years old, and both me and my sister were explaining to him everything, mm-hmm. and um, and you know, trying to get him to understand the time, the period, everything. Yes. And so I wanted to talk to you more in depth because even I learned a lot of different things oh, from wow. that exhibition. That makes me so happy, Savannah. I, Thank you. No, I really did. And the first person I wanted to talk to you about was um, Buford uh, Delaney. Yes. And so I didn't just look at the works that he did. I actually did a lot of research on him. And it made me sad. I wanted to cry again Mm -hmm. when I read his biography because he's like David Lemming's book. Yeah. Yeah. It's like he's this unsung hero that a lot of people don't know anything about. And it was looking at his evolution as an artist, Mm -hmm. where he started with portraits and then moved to abstract work when he got to Paris. And, you know, it was really the touching story about his soul because he never felt comfortable as a person. No. And he... Especially a gay black man. He had been... He had come of age in New York and... Well, actually... As a Southerner, mm-hmm. and then a Southern transplant to New York, and then a Southern New Yorker to Paris. It's an extraordinary kind of journey, and one that we're not of the migrant class anymore. Mm. Um, our grandparents did that for us. Baldwin did it for us. So yeah. that kind of moving around, trying to find a home, is such a is such an takes an incredible lack act of will, but also incredible energy and perseverance, right? I mean, he was going to Paris, to France really kind of as an unknown artist. Yes, um, and late in life, And too. he was in his f- mid-50s, yeah. and he had the support of Baldwin and a couple of other people, but he was really unknown, and it was, I think, a way of trying to save his life, of mm. trying to save... Or to shore up his mental stability, which uh-huh. was very fragile from years of abuse, not yeah. only in the South, but as a gay man in New York, there was that terrible period of time in the 40s, 50s, when you could be arrested uh-huh. for cruising, where you could be arrested for um Liking, basically liking someone. Right. So I think that a lot of this sort of hidden stuff about Buford has to do with trying to make contact with people, being beaten up for it, mm-hmm. ripped off. And there are many, there are many, many stories like that. Um, he was fortunate in that he adopted a 17, 16-year-old James Baldwin. Right who was deeply loyal to him. And also Buford had um, loved him. So it was one of the few examples of male love that Baldwin knew and that Buford knew. And the text that I have in the show is a quote from Baldwin saying, in a more 
in a less unkind atmosphere, it would have been recognized that he was my master and I was his pupil. Wow. And so their relationship had to take place through all sorts of thickets of subterfuge. And it's incredible that Buford was able to paint as much as he did. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was not, I think because he wasn't as young as Baldwin, the transitions were more difficult. I, I just felt so sad because as I was reading about his life, mm-hmm. that he was really a very lonely person. Yes. And he died really in a mental health institution in France. In France, yes. And I think it was because he had more of a broken heart than anything That's else. That's exactly right. I think, Zavonna, you picked up completely the sort of essence of that section of the show, which has, um, I'll tell the folks that you're referring to a, a sort of big yellow painting mm-hmm. um, that's there where Baldwin, there's a text that Baldwin talks about having lunch with him and the colors coming through the window. And Buford was able to work in abstractions um, because he was freer. Yeah. Um, and he was free because he was following the lead of a younger man who adored him. But that freedom, freedom for artists manifests itself visually. And mm-hmm. so that abstraction, and I think also the picture of the church members um, in yes. the show next to David Baldwin, James Baldwin's father, who was, <clears throat> of course, a, a preacher. I think each subject, whether abstract or representational, really is about grace in some mm. way. Um, I wanted to have those elements be about grace. Wow. Because then that dovetails into the other influence that I felt impacted um, Baldwin, and that was with Orvella Miller. Uh, Orvella. And um, Bill. Yeah, and how she, you know, tapped into him being also a shy young man. Yes. And not comfortable in talking, and she and her husband embraced him. Well, I think he was uncomfortable with whiteness. I mean, Mm. you know, he had been in... um, In The Devil Finds Work, he writes beautifully about her, and he said that she didn't baffle him the way that landlords did and ah. and policemen did. Um, that was his experience of whiteness was about power. Mm. And here was this person who was not only being supportive of him as a burgeoning young writer, it was someone who was also supportive of his family. Yeah. And he says that my mother called her the highest compliment, which was a Christian. Mm. Um, and so... Imagine if you're 10 or 11 and you can't, you have no economic freedom, so that means that you have no geographical freedom. And this person comes into your life and says, I'll take you places, I'll get the tickets, I'll. That's a form of love and attention that, you know, he had never had before. Right, because his father was very abusive. Yes. I should say stepfather. Yes. His stepfather was very abusive. Um, he, Baldwin never knew his biological father. And the stepfather, um, it's so strange to kind of be orphaned, isn't it? But Mm. you're living with the person who gives you the feeling of being orphaned. And I think that his father, stepfather rather, gave him that feeling of being orphaned. And at the same time, it was that feeling that allowed him to be 
the maverick that he was, um, mm. that he was able to persevere alone um, and not crumble because he had survived loneliness for so long. Right. Um, I don't know if he ever had a, a truly serious reciprocal relationship um, with another person, but on the other hand, why would he after all of that? You right. know? So I think that in the show... You know, pictures by people like Buford or Marlene Dumas, the, that yes, wall of, of men of color primarily who had been friends of Baldwin's or Marlon Brando, who was a great friend of his. Mm-hmm. These were all men who he made a kind of surrogate family out of that he was able to be seen by um, and that wanted to see him. So that whole first room in the show really is biographical, but also... Uh, a way of refuting his father's um, condemnation that he was the ugliest boy I'd ever seen. I I saw that, and I couldn't believe his father would say such a thing. I mean, he wasn't handsome, but to say that to your child is just unimaginable. And to say it a lot. um, Yeah. What does that child walk away with? I mean, what kind of sense of self-worth, really? Yeah. He's very, Baldwin's a very touching figure in that way. But do you know what that reminded me of? It reminded me of Zora Neale Hurston, and Mm -hmm. their eyes were watching God. Mm -hmm. And um, the, one of her uh, male, you know, partners who was sort of like that, um, like Baldwin's father, cruel and saying all these nasty things. and, And I said, you know, look how, Janie in that story was able to survive all of that cruelty Mm -hmm. to then finally find the love she needed. She lost him, Mm -hmm. but she finally found the love with someone who accepted her as an equal and could treat her with kindness. And it made me think just now as you were talking about Baldwin and how he survived a father who was so cruel to Mm -hmm. him, a stepfather so cruel, and he survived to find friends and other people who were supportive and how he gave voice to other people who needed it during the civil rights movement. That's right. And so I see these parallels about the different struggles that people had to endure in order to produce the art that they are now famous for. And also to, um, I mean, it's a profound thing when you are disenfranchised and you use that sense of loneliness to help other people. A lot Mm -hmm. of people become drug addicts. Mm -hmm. A lot of people drink. A lot of people revisit that cruelty onto other people. And it takes an incredible soul and person not to replicate what has happened to you. I think that's, you know, just so important. And then that brings up another influence, Richard Avedon. Yes. <laughs> and, and that that made a, that really touched me because I didn't know that Baldwin went to D with Clinton. Yes. Him and Avedon went to D with Clinton but I am a Bronx girl originally. You are? And I went to Bronx Science. <gasps> you're, that's, that means that you're one of the three smartest kids in New York. Not many, not, I mean, they left two people in a year. Congratulations. So I was next door. I mean, much later, but I was next door at Bronx Science. So when I saw that, I was like, oh my God, because when I was a kid, 
you know, I, I lived on the southeast section of the Bronx. So mm. to get there, I had it's to take— It's in Riverdale, yes? Well, um, it's more like Mashula Parkway. Okay. So I had to take a bus and two trains and then walk to the school. So, so what time did you have to get up in the morning? I got up early no matter what. But the thing was, I used to, in my neighborhood, there was a lot of boys who went to D. Wick Clinton. Mm-hmm. So I had to keep up with the boys yeah. when we would run for the train. Yeah. <laughs> so they like, Savannah, keep up, keep up. <laughs> so I had to run, and we would run the block up the stairs of Simpson Street yes. to catch the, the train to get us to the Grand Concourse to switch over to the four. So when I saw that, I was like, oh, my God. Isn't was, that amazing? Isn't that something, how people's lives touch? Yes. And so when I saw that, it really caught me how he went there. And then I read about his relationship with Avedon, how they were a part of, I think, the school newspaper. The Avedon was the um, editor-in-chief of the Magpie, and Baldwin wrote, for the magpie. And there's there were so many things that I had to leave out of the show, <laughs> unfortunately. But one of the great stories that Avedon told me was Baldwin they were in high school and Bald Baldwin lived on Uptown Fifth Avenue. Right. And Avedon lived on Downtown. Midtown. Okay. Fifth Avenue. And um, you know, Upper East Side. And uh um he went to visit Dick and the doorman showed him the back entrance. Ooh. You know, he's a high school boy. And he shows him the back entrance. And the you know how those apartments are always like very long mm-hmm. so that there's a, a a maid's entrance in the back. And so he rang the bell and Avanon's mother, Anna, very tough woman, answered and she said, Well, Jimmy, why did you come back here? Wow. He said, well, the doorman told me to come back here. And she said, oh, really? And she rang the elevator. And the doorman came upstairs, and she said, don't you ever Mm. treat a guest of ours like this again. And she hit him. Wow. And so along the way, and I think that this is what prevented him, he said, from being a racist, was... He knew that it had something to, the thing that prevented him from being a racist was, it, was that it, it, he knew that it, life was more complicated than color. Mm-hmm. And so he would have to see beyond the color mm-hmm. of that person because I think he had had enough human responses in his life mm-hmm. to... Um, to understand. To, to know that it was more complex yeah. than that. Wow. And that's amazing that he didn't become a bitter person, isn't it? Yeah. That That's at such a young age to experience yeah. that. Yeah. So that was an, another profound person I thought, you know, was important to Baldwin in his life. Then I, I liked the images by Glenn Ligon. 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 Yes. And um, it's just like he has, you know, this spattering of different or a mashup of different images. Uh, was, in the second room. Right. Yeah. The Malcolm X son, the uh, the Fred um, image, the boy with the bubbles. Isaac it was, Hayes. <laughs> all of that yeah. uh, in there and with lots of color, too. Yeah. And... Um, but I see that there's the sense of freedom when I look at his that work. That was you've got. Listen, you have 
You're the best critic of the show so far <laughs> because um, the second part of the show is is realizing the art that Baldwin couldn't make for himself. He had a great dream, as you know, um, and that I make clear to make images, to make films himself, but he was never able to achieve this as a as a dream. Mm-hmm. And when you when I went through his work, it was extraordinary how many images he had um, written. Okay. Um, so that the Kara Walker film, for instance, is, if you read his piece on Ingmar Bergman, it ends with, it's uncanny. It's almost as if he'd written right. um, the beginning of Kara's movie. So with Glenn... I really wanted to talk about black queerness. And one of the thing that is, things that's so extraordinary about those comic book images is, you know, there's Malcolm X with lipstick on, and then there's Isaac Hayes um, with chains, but sort of, quote-unquote, feminized figure. Um, there's a lot that I think is very subversive about that room um, because Baldwin himself never really talked about explicitly about being gay, until one of the last pieces that he ever wrote. Ah. Um, so we wanted him to have that freedom. And so that burst of color and energy is really about life and about creativity. I'm so glad you picked up on that. Thank you. And I mean, I really saw all these different things, including, mm. and I always ha- have a hard time saying her first name, but Miss Crosby. And Judeca. Yes. Yes. And, and that was, I, I think that Baldwin wasn't the greatest on women. <laughs> And 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 I love that it's. Um, but he has written about miscegenation, and it's a picture. Angedeka, um, it's of a woman of color and a white man, mm-hmm. and because that's her husband. Yes, she's mimicking. yes, and the woman is bending to listen and to protect. Um, and so the the roles are reversed. Generally, the man is standing in a painting, um, and I really wanted to make to acknowledge. Baldwin's work in another country mm-hmm. and other novels um, where he talks about race and heterosexuality. But I also wanted to challenge him. Okay. And that's why there's a long quote from his conversation with Audre Lorde where she says, okay. you have to imagine what a black woman feels, too. Um, he, she, he's, she says, I don't know what a man feels. But just as I don't know that, you don't know how a woman feels. So that's why I wanted to have... Angedeka's um, painting there, which a uh, piece there, which I think is such an extraordinarily kind and vibrant work in a in a show that balances so many different kinds of feelings. You know, I I, I met her. Oh yeah, she's great, isn't and, she? And her husband when she was at the Studio Museum. Yes. And uh, she was telling me so much about when she and her husband got married yes. and, you know, how their families were dealing with the dynamics yeah. of them as an interracial couple. And uh, so I thought that was interesting how you interjected. And I saw that, how she was embracing. Yes. And I knew she she does a lot of paintings that deals with the fact that she and her husband are interracial. Yes. So I thought that was good. But then I, I wanted to make sure before we end that I get your opinion. Opinion, if you have already seen the fi- film, If Beale Street Could Talk, what did you think about the film and its impact now? Because Baldwin is back. 
Yeah. He's back now, and people are really paying attention. I saw you had the screening of films at the Metrograve. And Metrograph, yeah. Me- Metrograph, and so he's back. People are talking about him all over the place. I'm so happy for that because he, no one deserves, no one deserves our attention more and our um, love more. One of the big parts of the show or impetus for the show really was to give him back his body, though. I mean, I think that in terms of him being applauded and supported and embraced as a kind of political philosopher now, they've forgotten that he's a gay black man. And that was essential to me Mm -hmm. um, in terms of putting the show together. Um, I saw the film, and maybe I shouldn't respond... (laughs) Well, to, not so much about the whether you like the film okay. or not, but the the fact that you know the the film is. I'm glad out that there. I'm glad that the estate allowed yeah um, um, the film to be made, and hopefully right. there'll be other opportunities to adapt Baldwin's mm-hmm. work. Yeah, and and I, I I like the fact that it was done in Harlem, and uh, they did reach out to me. They wanted me to help them find an art piece that I, I guess I couldn't find for them. But mm. the point was, it was interesting because as I'm also reading about Baldwin talking about the story, he's saying this street, Bill Street, you know, it's in Harlem, but it's there are many Harlems across yes. the country. And it could happen there, this situation, but it could happen somewhere else where, you know, the story unfolds of this young man being accused of doing something no. he didn't <clears throat> do. And we're still dealing with that till today. That's right. I think that um, one of the um, reasons um, for people to continue adapting Baldwin is that there are many different kinds of stories um, that he told. And I, for one, would love to see one of his queer stories, Giovanni's Room, Mm -hmm. or um, aspects of another country um, adapted, because what what what's happening in terms of Baldwin being reclaimed is that he's um his life has been um i think devalued as a gay man mm. and that has been very very important for me to bring back to the show it was also during that time too because during mm. the beginning of the civil rights movement that was know, another yeah dynamic. that was another sort of closeted era um but Beale Street is in the seven, was published in the seventies, right. and um, I don't think it's his best book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would like to see um, other opportunities present themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm just glad that it was done because it's you know beautifully sort of um, interpretive, yeah, mm-hmm. and the music. Mm-hmm. I thought was something else, and I, I do believe Regina King will probably win the Oscar. I hope she. I hope she's. Listen, I hope. Listen, I. I'm, I'm such a big fan of hers. Yeah. Um, I have a, another friend who's a contender, mm-hmm. so I can't play favorites. Right. right. But I wish they both got. <laughs> Yes. Got the award. It can happen. <laughs> yes, that's right. It can be split. It can. It can it be can. split. Yeah. 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 And um, so I just wanted to say thank you so much for You're more sharing than 
all of your, you know, insights because I just thought, you know, what you were doing was great, the way it was laid out, and oh. it's still available for the public to see through February 16th. That's right. And I think they should go because one of the things, I don't know if you realize, I do curate art, and one of the things yes. I liked about it was the fact that you made room for people to walk. Yes. And I believe that is so important. Incredibly important to be... Um, immersed. Yeah. yeah. And not have it cluttered and overwhelmed. Some people feel that, oh, you got to make every inch covered, you know. No. no. You want people to think, to reflect, to ask questions, to walk to around. Have that air. Yes. Yeah. And if you overdo it, you, you really undermine the essence of what is trying to be said. So I just want to say thank you uh, so much. I'm incredibly. <laughs> Thrilled to see you again, looking so well. <laughs> Thank you. Beautiful dress. Okay. Um, and um, I'm happy to come back anytime. All right, then. Thank okay. you so much. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on to our show. Thank you. It's an honor. And um, I also um, wanted to let you know I'm a big fan of opera. I always have. Because it's dramatic. <laughs> It has so many levels and uh, different sort of dynamics that people can, um, you know, get lost into. The first opera I really loved was Don Giovanni. That was mm. my first one because I loved how at the end he grips the hand <laughs> of that sort of mystical character and he's going off to hell. And I just was like, I love this. This is this is fantastic. And um <laughs> America is now starting to develop new opera and about time. And so your opera, Mila the Great Sorceress, is very different because even though you're American, the theme is based on a Tibetan priest who has a very um, violent past. So tell me, what made you decide to develop this kind of opera with that sort of theme? Um, that's a great question. Um, as you were saying about opera, you know, it's very, it lends itself to drama and it lends itself to transformation. Mm -hmm. And opera can really um, tackle uh, large archetypal themes. And this story of uh, Buddhism's you know, greatest teacher, uh, Mialarepa, um, it's a beautiful story. And mm -hmm. it is essentially about transformation, the ultimate transformation of a man who was um, forced to kill uh, mm. as a young boy um, at his mother's behest, and then through the rigorous trials of a great master teacher, he's able to redeem his soul and eventually attains enlightenment and becomes this, this um, venerated teacher. And for me, um, the idea to write an opera on Milarepa um, really started happening when I was doing Tibetan music field work in the Himalayas. Ah. So I started doing that in 2008 as a result of a commission. I was doing uh, research on a new piece, and I happened to hear about one man who was the, the last remaining court song singer in northern Nepal, just one mile uh, over the border from Tibet. 
And he was the last singer who knew this repertoire of song and things came together uh, for me and some of my colleagues to uh, record his music. So the time that I spent in the Himalayas, very close to where Milarepa lived, mm-hmm. um, was really seminal in in exposing me to uh, more to Tibetan Buddhism and to this story in particular. Well, so it was a real real dream come true when I met the librettist, um, Jean-Claude Bonitali, who was partnering with um, Lois Walden, and they had already written a libretto on Milarepa. We, we met each other by chance at the Rubin Foundation. So it was... Um, Quite fortuitous. <laughs> well, let me interject because, <clears throat> in many ways, the story of your protagonist is almost similar to the story of, you know, uh, Buddha himself. He didn't deal with the violence that your protagonist was engaged in, but at the same time, Buddha went through this sort of transformation and mm-hmm. enlightenment because he was privileged and then wanted to know what poverty was about and what suffering was all about. And through those experiences that his father didn't want him to um, have, he was able to show others how they can live life. And so I saw the parallels there in the the storytelling. And was that also um, something that touched you as well, how closely their stories were? Yes, absolutely. You know, there's this message that um, that awakening and redemption are possible for anyone, no matter what you've done. Um, even if you've you've served in a war and you've had to kill and you've come home, it is possible for you to redeem your soul. And you know that challenging life circumstances can open up this portal out of suffering Mm. and possibly lead one to a spiritual path. So I felt that there was a message in this for for everyone, and the story deeply moves me. I I believe in human possibility, you know, what's possible among us, um, between us, for our world. And so um, this was kind of, um, you know, an important important message that... um, that brought that to life, and as you said, in sort of the you know the grand format of opera, so it's very um, emotional and direct. And um, <laughs> no, 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 this is good. And also, um, just walk us through just briefly, um, because uh, for the benefit of those listening um, to your um, your story, um, how did the genre of opera help? to tell this important story. It's one thing that this is a great story, but mm-hmm. the the genre itself, the techniques of opera, how did that specifically help in telling this particular story for you? That's a great question, um, Savannah. This, um, first of all, Mila, Mila Ripa was not only a great teacher and, um, you know, tells, tells a story of transformation, but he was a singer. Mm. Uh, he, was, he was a bard, and his 100,000 songs can still be found in, a, in published form, not um, in the musical form, but his teachings um, can, can be read um, in the, the 100,000 songs of Milarepa. And so he, he taught through teaching. He lived his life as a, as a singer, and so it seemed very appropriate to 
um, to set the story and music. And for me, as a composer, it's so much of it is about vibration and the music that is um, in the words and between the words. Ah. So, you know, how the challenge for me was how could I create the sound of um, raising consciousness or, you know, the sound of something that's fiercely demonic that becomes and transforms into something that's, you know, exquisitely beautiful. Um, and through that um, desire to create those sounds that I hadn't heard before, I was really kind of led to a, a new musical language for myself, um, combining Tibetan instruments that I brought back from my tracks with um, Western orchestra and also um, working with an instrument builder, David Contact, mm -hmm. um, who built instruments that could create the most demonic or wrathful sounds as well as haunting and ethereal mm. sounds. So to create a sound world that supports the libretto and kind of um, takes us on this, immersive. this journey. Yeah. yeah, immersive, exactly. <laughs> That's really great. And before we go, I, I, I also understand that you were influenced by Laurie Anderson. And I thought that was interesting because I've had Laurie on my show before. In fact, it's really kind of funny because I had tried to get her on. Times Square Alliance wanted me to meet her when she was doing the um, Midnight Moments, when she was doing the whole dog you know, um, a project. And so I said to um, Times Square, are you, you know, bringing a car to bring me downtown at midnight because it's kind of cold out here. <laughs> and they said, no. And I said, well, I think I'm going to bypass that. So it took months before another opportunity came. And then I told Lori, she said, I don't blame you. She said, I was cold myself. She said, my fingers were frozen. <laughs> My fingers, went, and we were having such a good time. A friend yeah. of mine said, well, "What's going on with the two of you? Y'all acting like girlfriends. Y'all up there and not having an interview. Y'all are like girlfriends, just chatting away." And we had just such a good, such a good time. And so now to hear that there's this connection again. So tell us, how did Lori influence this opera for you? Well, I have to say that Lori is just. She's a remarkable presence. She is. She's brilliant, and yet she's also really down to earth. She's very and much warm. Is. And so we were at Yado, which is an artist residency in upstate New York in Saratoga Springs. And we were both fellows there, actually twice, um, when I was working on the opera. And the more recent time, which was um, when I was orchestrating, I guess it was um, last fall, she... Um, it, you know, we would all talk at dinner. All the fellows would come in from their studios and talk about what they were making. And so I posed a question to the group, you know, what do you think the sound of enlightenment might be? And um, Lori jumped in with, you know, this, uh, it was, it was, the way she explained it um, is, is uh, much better than what I could do here. But okay. she said something like, it's the resonance that's left in the room. Mm. And then there was silence. <laughs> we were all just so wow. taken by her. And, and so we ended up getting into a talk about listening and meditation and Buddhism and kind of career as artists, you know, what does it mean to create a larger space? 
Um, and so I took that back to my studio and was thinking, okay, the resonance that's left, the vibration that's left after something happens. Wow. What, what is, what is, um, and so um, it made its way into the score. <laughs> I think that's interesting. I mean, very profound what she said about that yeah. make you definitely stop in your tracks mm-hmm. and and think about this. So um, tell us, um, is Mila, the great sorceress, um, going to perform again somewhere in the in the U.S.? We hope so. We mm-hmm. were really pleased with this very this, this first um, semi stage production through mm-hmm. the Prototype Festival this month and. Um, we're hoping that it'll have future performances. I happen to love the prototype uh, festival. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I really, no, I seriously, I really love them. I think they really go out of their way to bring some very cutting edge um, opera. I love breaking the waves because I remember the film mm-hmm. when it first came out. And yeah. I That's was a stunning just, opera. It really was. <laughs> I, I just, I think they really are, are making it, um, just wonderful for composers to produce new music, new sound. Well, I just want to thank you, Andrea, for this short chat that we had. I mean, it was very impactful, and I think a lot of our audience now are going to pay attention. We've been writing up about you and posting some stuff up, and we're going to encourage more and more people to keep up with you and your music salons. Oh, thank you so much. Uh-huh. <laughs> I know about them, too. <laughs> so thank you so much. And uh, we look forward to having you again, Andrea Clearfield. Thanks again. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.